Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm the president, founder of the Coming Home Network International, and you're joining us on an episode of Deep in Scripture. And uh, my partner for this battle of Scripture today is my good friend, Ken Hensley. Hello, Ken. Hello. Good to be with you again, Marcus. We we were just recently together with a, a group of with a cackle of pilgrims uh, to Rome for, uh, was it just 10 days? Seemed like forever. Well, it was 12 days, including the travel. <laughs> yeah, so I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I feel like it's been so long since I've seen you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it just only been a short time. And, uh, and I wanna thank you all for joining us on this episode of The Deep in Scripture. One of the reasons I'm glad that Ken could be the guest this week is we wanted to um, reflect a bit on something that may have hit us when we were on our trip to Rome. And maybe even in conjunction with the fact that also within the last week or so, the church has beatified um, a convert to the church that, at least I know for both of us, his writings were important in our journeys to the church. That's John Henry Cardinal Newman. And we called our pilgrimage to Rome a deep in history pilgrimage because many years ago, the Coming Home Network began sponsoring conferences and a variety of things uh, under the theme of deep in history. And that came from a statement made by John Henry Cardinal Newman in the introduction of his book, an essay on the development of doctrine, in which he says, mm-hmm. to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And I know, Ken, that you've written a lot of articles lately in the newsletter that really base off of that presumption. Yes, yes. In fact, in the past, many, many articles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Newman, is a, Newman was very big for me. And by the way, you said he had been beatified, canonized. Canonized, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're exactly yeah, I just right. I want, want to correct that for the hearers. He is now St. Newman. And uh, and that's really exciting. I mean, uh, that that to me puts a very important stamp on everything that he wrote and everything that he did and mm-hmm. and, and said and and and, uh, and the decisions he made. The church says yes, yes to Newman, and that's good. I'll, I'll want to add one other quote that backs up that statement. It's from the same introduction to that essay, just a couple paragraphs before, when Newman said. And this one thing at least is certain, that whatever history teaches, whatever it omits, whatever it exaggerates or extenuates, whatever it says or unsays, at least the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. Oh, man. Yes, this is, I mean, this is one that was just, uh, uh, all I can say is this was a major step for me. In fact, I, I still remember all those statements so well. And there's another one that I can kind of paraphrase, that's around the same place in the book, the essay, in which he says that if such a system of doctrine as Protestants believe exists, if it existed in the early church, he says, it, it has been clean swept away from history as if by a flood. See, one one thing when, I, when I'm talking with evangelicals, Protestants, one thing that comes to me is, well, the early church was Protestant, it was essentially Baptist in its theology or Presbyterian in its theology or Lutheran. But the church 
being the victor in history has, you know, expunged the record. It is, you know, it's, it put the bleach bit <laughs> on, <laughs> on, the, on the historical record and has wiped it out. And the reason that doesn't work is precisely because we know so much about all the other heresies That's that right. existed back then. You know, for some reason, we know about the Marcionites, we know about the Montanists and the Apollinarians and the Eutyche. We, we know about all these heretical groups precisely because the church uh, was writing about them and answering them. And so this really hit me. Why don't I find Irenaeus or Ignatius or Justin? Mar Why don't I find one of them answering the Baptists? or answering a group that is essentially Presbyterian in its theology, or, you know, yes, those groups d do not appear to have existed in well, the early church. Anyway, this is a big... But wasn't it Ambrose that said that the church woke up and found itself Baptist? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, that's the point. He did I, not I know, say that. He said the church woke up and found itself Arian. And so, you know, the church didn't wipe yeah. out all the yeah. information yeah. about Arius and all of that, which almost conquered the church, if you will. Right, right. You know, it's there. The church has preserved everything. And, and you, Ken, and I and our pilgrims spent a week one afternoon uh, crowded into the Vatican Museum uh, seeing all the history that the church has preserved, mm -hmm. everything. It's preserved. Mm -hmm. It's all there because the mm -hmm. church isn't afraid. Of history, and the church doesn't whitewash all of its old popes and cardinals and bishops and religious and laity that were far less than perfect. Um, I'm guessing in 20 years, yes, indeed, the church will still have records of you and me, Ken, as bad as we are. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's part of history. And so the idea in our program today was okay. Let's choose some verses that uh, connect with mm -hmm. our trip to Rome. And if you will, this is a hybrid deep in scripture program because Ken and I will be sharing memorable verses, but these verses would also qualify for hard verses. In other words, there are many conflicting interpretations of these scriptures, but they would also qualify, Ken, I think, for verses we would we might say we never saw before because mm -hmm. before we were Catholic we didn't see him in the way mm -hmm. that we've come to see. And um, I guess an, another way, for those of you that are uh, sticklers on, on our program, I'll let you know that Ken, we broke the, we broke the mold. Ken and I both know the verses that we're going to talk about today we, instead of surprising it. But we're going to follow the same format, Ken. All right. I'm going to share my verse, and then you give me some time, because I know you're going to want to jump in on this. All right? Here's why I chose the verse that I chose today. Let me say something about that. Please, please do, please do. No. Are you joking? Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, you can do that if you want, Kim, because I, no. I, I, my problem with the verse that I, in the topic I want to look at, I could spend hours on this because it's it's really exciting to me right now. Yeah. And it does have to come from our trip because going to Rome. Visiting Assisi, Siena, uh, or, um, Orvieto, and then uh, the different churches, and we, we spent time inside the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. I mean, with so many neat things. Uh, there are many things we could say that that was about becoming deep in history, but there was something that struck me in a way that I don't know if it did you, Ken, or others, that when, when you leave your little hamlet where you live— 
it's easy to think, well, there's my relationship with Jesus, and, and I go to church, and I read the scriptures, and I pray every day, and I ask God for his guidance and, and Our Lady to pray for us and, and the saints to pray for us and intercede, and I really believe that God hears me and that God cares and that Our Lady prays for me. And I can't, I think you believe the same, that when you get up in the morning and you pray, you believe that. And so there's a sense in which the, we believe that the creator of the universe, who's outside of time, everything that exists came from him, that we have the audacity to believe that he yet loves us so much that he cares about us individually. And I believe that to be true. Yeah. Um, I've shared previously on this program that my life verse is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. I believe that. Okay, then when you leave your little hamlet and you get in an airplane with hundreds of people and you get in a bus with hundreds of people, and you go to other places where all of a sudden you're standing in a spot where thousands and thousands of people have lived, names you'd never heard of, civilizations you never thought about, the Etruscans who lived their whole lives making pottery that we saw room upon room of, and we went to churches in Siena where thousands of people worship, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. And the more deep in history you become, the more you're encountered by the thousands and millions of people who've lived on this earth. And so you ask yourself the question, does God care about them as much as he cares about me? How does he do that? It's overwhelming. And then when you look at those people, as we did when we were there at the different places we visited, and we see all these people, and we see people with different customs, and and we see a lot of people that don't seem to give a rip about God or don't seem to care about the church. And we, we see the most recent Pew data that says that even the percentage of Catholics in America has gone down 3% in the last 10 years. And that's a lot of people. You know, the number of Protestants is going down, the number of Catholics going down, the number of atheists is increasing, agnostics is increasing, the number of people with no, they're in, you know, what's, we look at all these things and we wonder what, what has happened. Why are all those people, maybe even so many people in the church that fall away, what is it that sets them apart from those that really love Christ? Why is there this, this difference? When we become deep in history, do we see an answer? And what struck me, Ken, and I'm trying to condense this so I, I may not be uh, adding all my logic up here, but the verse that came to my mind is a verse that has been important to me, uh, and I'm sure to you too, and it's the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And in the midst of that, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, this story is in all three Gospels. So, I mean, it's important. From the beginning, it's important. And I always remembered this story about the questions come up here. This guy comes to Jesus. He wants to know what he needs to do with eternal life. Jesus says, well, have you followed the commandments? He says, yep. 
And Jesus says, well, then there's one more thing for you to follow, and that's you got to go and sell it and give it away and follow me. And so the punchline to the story is the guy said, nah, it's too much, and so he walked away. And that leads to a bunch of discussion about how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. So we only we often remember that story only about this guy. He came to Jesus. Jesus put a big demand on him, and he couldn't do it, and he walked away. And that's why I remember the story. Mm-hmm. And as I thought about our experience, it struck me that the reason that this story is there is because the very question that this man asked is the most important question that we all got to ask. And maybe it's the reason why bazillions of people have lived and yet may not have made it through the narrow gate because they may never, in response to grace, ever ask this question of God. And let me give the background to that. I, as I was thinking about this, Ken, I came up with what I'm calling seven spiritual laws. Now, you remember when you were Protestant, did you have the four spiritual laws or the five spiritual laws? I think it was four. I mean, it was, I had a different system I was taught, but, but yeah, right. four, yeah. four is the normal. Yeah, four or five or the Roman road or whatever it was. There was this little way of understanding. And I've got these seven, these are a little different. And I'm going to go through these quickly because, to me, this is the backdrop to the story of the rich young ruler. From a Catholic perspective, and, you know, I don't want to get into a big apologetic argument with, with anyone about whether these are true or not, but this seems to be, from a Catholic perspective, how I've come to understand seven mm-hmm. things about all those people. Mm-hmm. If you do a, a, a Sean Kierkegaard moment and you go out and you sit in a coffee shop and you sit there and just look at everybody and you ask the question, I wonder if they're in God. I wonder if they're going to hell. I wonder if they're going to heaven. Here are seven things to know about every single person that you see in the world around you. All those people that ever lived in Orvieto, Ken. Seven things. Number one, God desires all to be saved. Every single person that's ever lived on this earth, God desires them to be saved. Number two, Christ has redeemed Every person that has ever lived, even before the cross, because he's outside of time. He's redeemed everybody. And there are scriptures to back this up. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all. All have been redeemed. Mm-hmm. Number three, salvation is through grace. It's not our intellect. It's not us studying the right books. It really is a gift of God. Number four, all, every single person who's ever lived has been given sufficient grace for salvation. Even those American, Native Americans that never heard the name Jesus, God loved them, God wanted them to be saved, and because salvation is through grace, God gave them sufficient grace to be saved. Number five, also, every single person who's ever lived has been given sufficient information. And that comes from Romans 1. The evidence of God is there in creation. No one is without excuse. Everyone knows. Everyone has sufficient information to know that there's a creator. And so if you think about that, this rich young ruler who came to Jesus, God wants him to be saved. Mm-hmm. Christ redeemed him by the cross. By the cross, you know, it hadn't happened yet historically, but in time, he was redeemed. His salvation is dependent on grace, not his coming to a bunch of information. And that rich young man has been given sufficient grace to be saved. 
and sufficient information to know that God is a creator and that he's been created. The sixth thing is that every single person is completely free to respond. There's that mystery between God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Mm -hmm. So when that rich young ruler came forward, he wasn't coming forward as a puppet. He came forward freely in response to the grace he'd been given. Mm -hmm. And then the last step is that salvation comes through faith and obedience in response to grace. So in other words, when you look at all those people, they've been given grace. The evidence is all around them. The question is, did they freely respond? Now, the reason why I think this verse is important is that the response that's necessary from everyone is not merely a belief that God exists. Lots of people, in response to the information and the grace, say, you know, I think there is a God. In fact, many think, I think just, no, I not only think there's a God, I'm going to I'm going to study the reality of God. I'm going to have a theology of God. I'm going to come up with a philosophy about it. I'm going to come up with every information I can about God. In fact, I believe that God exists. I'm going to come up with rituals and, and ways to worship. I'm going to do all that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that person's saved. What saves that person is with all mm-hmm. that information and all that grace, they get to the point of saying, wait a second, time out, Lord Okay, what do you want want of me? Mm -hmm. That's the turning point for all those zillions of people out there who go to mass or go to worship every week. The bottom line is not whether they realize there's a God or accept that there's a God or, or, or do the rituals and do all that. The bottom line is at some point they have to respond to grace and say, Lord, what do you want of me? And it's not like a son going to dad and say, okay, dad, what do you want me to do so that I can go out and do my other things? You know, or what, what do you want me to do so I can make 50 bucks? No, it's surrender. What do you want of me? Mm-hmm. And that's what this man in the story did. All those seven things on that list had already happened in that man's life. He had the grace. He had the information. He came forward. And he got to the point of saying, okay, Lord, what do you want of me? What's really cool about the story is he's always told he's a rich young ruler. So in essence, he came forward in a very humiliating way in front of all these people and say, mm-hmm. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the way our Lord responds, that's why this story is so important. That's the way our Lord responds is absolutely essential because the first thing he says is, well, you first begin by obeying what everybody knows you must do. Because there is the rules mm-hmm. of God, the rules of the church that God has given to all of us to follow. And so when you look at those millions of people, it's no secret on what all of us must do to be right with God. Holiness, humility, uh, you know, turning. You're, from, talking, you're talking about the moral law being written on the heart. Yeah. 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 But even in the church, you know, the Ten Commandments. You know, mm-hmm. if you've if you're a part of the church, and you say, "Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do?" Well, the first thing is, uh, well, the first thing is be a faithful Christian, be a faithful Catholic Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, and we think of those Ten Commandments, <clears throat> and 
through the mentality that you and I would have had as former Protestants, we through our Bible-only mentality, we would have thought, well, he's obeying the scriptures. But the only reason this rich young ruler knew the Ten Commandments that came to him through the church, mm-hmm. God established a church that established how we are to be right with God. So the point of it is the first step that our Lord always says is, obey the church. Obey the church. That's what Newman, that's why he became Catholic. When Newman had always believed mm-hmm. that as an Anglican, he was a part of the church Catholic and he had no motive to convert. But once he realized that the Church of England was in schism, he said for the sake of his salvation, he became Catholic. Because it's the only way he could know that what he was doing was sufficient for salvation. And so this rich young man, his answer was, I've done that. He wasn't being flippant. He wasn't being arrogant. He wasn't being, Mm -hmm. he was just saying, in other words, he had so moved by grace that indeed he had sought to be obedient to how we understood God's law and love in the church. In at the time, it was the, of course the Jewish church, and that became the church. And so, from that standpoint, he says, "I've done that." And that's when Jesus says, "There's one more right. thing," and that that was the personal call for him. That was for him, yeah. For you, yeah. And really, if you look at the story, the reason this story is there is that this man moved by grace, had been beckoned by God in the exact same way the (laughs) other 12 were. Mm -hmm. Peter and James from their boat. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, Peter and Andrew in their boat, you know, Matthew. They they had the same thing. All of them had all these seven things happen to them. They had received grace, the information. They had moved. They had basically said, okay, Lord, where where do you live? Where do I follow Mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, Obviously, I'm quite. I'm guessing that all twelve of the apostles were already obeying the laws of the church. They'd already done the the major, and so the next step was, "What do you want me to do?" And so, what was Jesus' mm-hmm. answer to every one of them? Follow me. Follow mm-hmm. me. Leave your mm-hmm. boats. Leave your tax collector. Leave your tax table. Follow me. This man, go sell, give it away. Follow me. And the story is there as a reminder that just like in Psalm 95, when we're reminded every day that that the people had hardened their hearts and God was Mm -hmm. saying, you know, I've had it with you guys for 40 years, you know, and so this story is there to challenge us to recognize, have we surrendered ourselves to, Lord, what do you want of me? And just one last thing, Kim, before I open it up. Again, when I look at those millions of people, my thinking is that a majority of people, I just we don't know their hearts, but it doesn't seem like a vast majority of people have moved through those seven steps, responding to grace and to the information to the point where they say, Lord, what do you mm-hmm. want of me? What do you want of me? And the danger, though, and I saw this in Protestantism, is that some people will get so far out of whack that they only focus on the individual and say, okay, what do you want of me, Lord? What do you want of me? And they don't, they ignore the first part, which is the church has been established to establish Mm -hmm. disciplines for us to live that help us grow Mm -hmm. in perfection. That's the Mm -hmm. first part. Those Mm -hmm. are, to a certain extent, are more important 
than the individual call. But as you're surrendering to the individual call and you're asking God, what do you want of me? He will guide you into that unique thing he's called Mm -hmm. us to do. And my last point, Ken, is does it seem like a bazillion, the majority of people lived in this earth that God does not talk to them daily? And I would say, yeah, because they didn't ask him. They didn't turn to him and ask. (laughs) Now, people watching this, they do know, I mean, in this case, you threw out the verses you were going to, the verse you were going to base this on. You sent it in an email to me. And when we got on, when we got on Skype here talking, you asked me if I'd gotten the email. I said, no, I haven't even seen it yet. So, okay. (laughs) You, you've said a lot. You've said a lot here. Yep. And, um, yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of Romans chapter one. You know that 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 God's existence and His nature is clearly seen, okay, through creation, the beauty of creation, the organization of creation, through our consciences, God's law written on our hearts. He has communicated to every person, and Paul says so. They are without excuse. Yeah. And in fact, he goes on to say, they are without excuse. Those who suppress the truth. So, you know, in order to get away from God, you have to suppress. It's not a matter of I don't have any evidence. You have to suppress the evidence. But, but okay, this is what I'm going to do. I have a little sermon here, all right, that's come to my mind. <laughs> okay, rather than going through your points, you know, the gospel can pre- be presented in a number of ways and yeah. from a number of different angles. I want to present a way that I have developed in my mind through the years that coheres, though, so beautifully with what, with what you said, okay? And mine starts with... Um, it starts with a reading from Pascal in his book, The Ponces, where he famously says, all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. What, however different the means they may employ, he says, they all tend to this end. The, the motive of some going to war and the motive of some who don't go to war is all the same. They're, they're seeking happiness. And he says, even the man who hangs himself hmm. is, seek, is seeking happiness. And then he goes on, very provocative passage. Then he goes on to say that, men tend to seek their happiness in created things. And so he says, no one is happy ultimately in this world, except those who have faith in God. Because he says, everyone is frustrated, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're powerful or weak, whether they run entire nations or they or they wiggle along like a worm on the, on the ground and no one knows of their existence at all. They're all dissatisfied. And he says, the reason is they're seeking their happiness in some created thing, whereas, he refers to it as the infinite abyss within us can only be filled by an infinite object that is God himself. So, so here's something that's developed in my mind through the years. Premise number one, Marcus Grodi is seeking happiness. And so is Ken Hensley. And so is every person listening to this podcast and every, all the <laughs> bazillions you said, um, <laughs> I'm not sure if bazillions would work since they're only about 7 billion now, but I, I don't know how many. Okay, but every, everyone that has ever lived, premise one, we're all seeking happiness. And Pascal says that that's the motive of every action and everything we do. We're seeking, and I don't mean, he didn't mean happiness in, in just a shallow sense, but he meant the real deal, fulfillment, satisfaction. What's it all about, okay? Premise one, we're all seeking happiness. Premise two is that in our seeking, we're all trusting in something. Everyone is always trusting in something. So 
either you're trusting in money, for instance, or you're trusting in, you know, fame or your name or a, a love relationship, you know, romance, whatever. We're all, we're, we all want happiness and we're all trusting in something to find it. And you can tell what we're trusting in by watching our lives. You know, uh, some guy who gets it. I mean, if I get up every morning and you see me just immediately going to Bloomberg and I'm just checking all the stock prices and all that. And all I'm thinking about all day long is should I sell? Should I buy which one and all that? You kind of know where I'm at, yep. you know, you know, meaning, you know what I'm trusting in. OK, OK. So premise one, everyone's seeking happiness. Premise two, everyone's trusting in something. And so the gospel comes and it doesn't say believe this series of facts like you like you said, like you explained. And I and I thought at the time while you were talking of that passage in James where he says the devils know that that yep. God is one yep. and they tremble. You know, so, you know, the devils have a systematic theology sitting on their shelves. They know a lot of stuff. OK, so. The gospel is not saying come to believe a certain set of facts and you'll have it made. And the gospel is not saying pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and earn your place in heaven by working really hard. What the gospel is saying, in essence, is turn from whatever idol you have been trusting for your happiness and turn to trust in me. You know, so it's a, it's follow me. It's drop your nets and follow me, or it's leave your tax booth, Matthew, and follow me. And in this, in the rich young ruler's case, that's that's why the particular call came through, because although he was able to say, you know, Lord, look, I've had do not steal on my mind my whole life. And I've had don't commit adultery and, and honor my, my, your father and your mother and and don't you know blaspheme your neighbor or speak evil. I, I, I've had all that and I've been doing that my whole life. But Jesus, knowing who he was, a rich young ruler. Jesus apparently, I mean, apparently, Jesus looked into him and Jesus knew, well, you have one problem, and that is in your seeking after happiness, I know what you're trusting. And you've been trusting all your life, and your case is your riches, and therefore, this is what you have to do. You're going to have to sell, you have to give it away, you're going to have to come and follow me. And he And he couldn't do it. And he hung his head in sorrow, and he walked away. Because, because he couldn't do it. And a verse, Marcus, that has always stood out to me in viewing the gospel in this kind of a different way, too, is that passage in First Thessalonians, I think it's 1-9, where Paul talks, he's praising the Thessalonians for their faith and how it's gone out and everyone throughout Achaia and everywhere, everyone knows about it. And he says, everyone knows about how you turn from idols to serve the living God. Okay? And when I was a Protestant, you know, with my usual, you know, with a typical sola, sola fide, justification by faith alone kind of point of view, that verse would, would have been strange to me mm -hmm. because I wouldn't have thought of the gospel as a call to turn from idols to serve the living God. But I do now, you know, Ken Hensley has been seeking happiness his whole life. Ken Hensley has always been trusting in one thing or another for his happiness. And like Pascal says, we tend to trust in created things. It doesn't work. And the call of, the, of Christ to me was turn from these things you're trusting and put your trust in me. And the thing is, if you trust Christ, this is your last point was faith and obedience. If you trust Christ, then you are going to get up and do what he tells you to do. 
not perfectly. You're going to fall a million times and you're going to need his grace a million times. But if you trust him, if you've turned from idols to serve the living God, then faith and obedience will be will be what your yeah. life looks like. And so do you see how these two kind of, yeah, they yeah. all come together? They do. And, in, in the, and I agree with what you said. It's a wonderful reflection. Maybe the only little part of it that I that I'm pushing a little just a slightly little different is and it's a really simple thing it's it's a really simple thing um, and in, in a way I always thought about it is you know people seeking happiness they may think that okay I, I'm my focus isn't on these things of the world I'm I'm going to church every day you know and I and, oh, yeah you know or you know, I, I'm I'm saying my daily office in in Latin. You know, and we well, got I would all this. Agree with that. Uh, yeah, so I would agree with that. Though you're just describing another kind of idol that can exist. Exactly, and it, to because me, it's it, still not turning. It's still not turning to trust God. Yeah, and in 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 that that trusting God, what seems to me what sets everyone in the world that's ever lived apart, which is why why the church. In a in a uh, a way that is um, controversial, why the church can say that there are people outside even Christ that can be saved who've never known Christ in the church. So how can they be saved? Well, given those seven things and the things you're talking about, by moved by grace, at some point, in some place in history, in some wilderness somewhere, wearing a grass skirt. They turn to the God that they know is there, and they say, "What do you want of me?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, see, that's mm-hmm. a, in 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 the in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "Ask, seek, knock," and God will not force Himself on anyone. He waits at the other side of the door in Revelations three twenty for us to open. And so, what do we want of our kids? We hope. That somehow moved by grace in their mm-hmm, life, mm-hmm. going to mass every day, saying the rosaries, whatever it is, all that stuff. At some point, at some point, the scales will fall off their eyes, and they'll turn as a son mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to God and say, "What do you want of me?" That's the key. Yeah, like the prodigal, <laughs> like the prodigal son lifting up his eyes that day and deciding, "I've got to go home." You know, I, I I've got to go home and. And when you were talking to about God's desiring all people to be saved and, the, you know, the mystery of sovereignty and freedom, I always think of that passage right at the end, Jesus in Jerusalem, after woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, woe unto you, woe unto you, behold, your house is left unto you desolate, Matthew 23. The next thing we see is Jesus looking out at the temple from the Mount of Olives and weeping and saying, how often I would have gathered you, but you wouldn't you would have nothing of it you wouldn't have it you know and and so you know this is one thing and now this doesn't apply to protestantism across the board you know there there are all kinds of views but i remember the debates that would occur in my church about what about those who have never heard and there would be the hardline side would say look bottom line there's no other name given under heaven about you know, by which men must be saved unless a missionary comes to this person in the grass skirt, tells them the gospel of Christ, and the person comes to accept it. They are lost. They are damned. Yeah. And then the other side of the equation, 
was the idea that God's revealing himself uh, through nature and through conscience and that and that grace is reaching out to every person, as you said, and that every person has that moment in which they can respond to the light that they have been given, um, you know, whoever it is. You know, I, yeah. I, I think of a, you know, a Pawnee in, Indian sitting on his rock, you know, 250 years ago, looking up and saying, I know that there's a great father. I know, you know, I know that yeah. behind all of this, there's a great father. You know, you've revealed this to me. What do you want me to do? Yeah. Um, and I'm happy though, that when I read the catechism of the Catholic church, it says that, you know, it just says flat out. Yeah. It basically says flat out that God will judge each person according to the light that they've been given and according to how they've responded to that light. And, and, the, and what you're saying. when people hear that, they kind of think we're saying we're teaching indifferentism that Jesus doesn't matter. The church yeah. doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what you are. You're a Buddhist. Whatever. That's not at all what the mm-hmm. church teaches. Well, the church is has dealt with this very conundrum that there have been sixteen Brazilian people on this earth, you know, and you know that, and God wants sixteen. Did you say sixteen Brazilians? Brazilians, yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you said Brazilians. There, there are more than sixteen. Yeah, I remember someone said that a person read in the newspaper that nine Brazilian were killed, and the person said, "Well, how many is a Brazilian?" You know, but uh, <laughs> but uh-huh. you know, how do you answer that question? God loves. Everyone, God wants them all to be saved. Christ died for them all. So how do you answer that? As a Calvinist, we didn't believe God, Christ died for everyone. We believe Christ only died for a few, the select, the limited. So that's that. the point is, the bottom line is, which is why we evangelize, is we want people to, by grace, to come to that point after they get all that information that still isn't enough. Just the fact that they believe as a God, as you said, is still not enough. In the fact that they're perfect in worship, perfect in liturgy, that they've lived their life perfectly isn't enough. And it's not about earning salvation. It's about surrender. Lord, what do you want of me? That's the bottom line. What do you want of me? You know, you, you began this conversation by talking about, uh, uh, about the... Uh, well, the, the really rattling, shocking thought that with all these Brazilians, I mean, all these Brazilians, <laughs> how does God know me? You know what? I was thinking while you said that, you know, you were talking about how you believe that each day and you said, and I'm sure you do too. And when you said that to me, I, I kind of thought, you know what? Even that one is hard for me because because I'm often praying. There's a prayer that there's a prayer that I pray in the morning, as I'm beginning my morning prayer, that that starts like this. It says, my Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. It, it, it goes on, but yep. when, whenever I pray those words, I, I firmly believe that you are here. I, I always, I'm kind of rattled again. I always think like, wow, yep. that you see me, Yep. That you hear me, I still find it difficult. I mean, I have to struggle. I have to say, Lord, because there's so many people, like you said, and the universe is so big, and there's so yep. many that have gone before. It's 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 hard for me to think that. You know, when I when I was learning about the community of saints, you know how we so blithely will rattle off at the end, Saint yep. Paul, pray for us, Saint Peter, pray for us, Saint John, pray for us. I remember saying to someone one day, Am I talking to Saint Paul? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Especially, I mean, especially talking- when you when you play silently in your head. Is he hearing me? You know, I'm thinking it. You know, 
And yeah, I mean, I've been reading St. Paul's letters for 40 something years now. I've been studying them. I've been preaching through them. Am I really talking to him? You know, so, so these things, you know, in reality, all of these things are such mysteries beyond our comprehension. You know, I we have to be grateful that we can grasp any Well, of it. In, the, in the scriptures promise that God responds to the prayers of a righteous man. So our, our number yeah. one call is by grace to grow in righteousness. In other yeah. words, but the, the bottom line is, asking God, yeah, and he responds. And I do believe that a lot of the times that the, so many people say, I don't, I, you know, I don't think there's a God. I've never seen evidence of a God. And I'm going to say, excuse me, but did you ever sincerely in your heart ask for God? Did you ask of him? Not so that you can get, but in surrendering. And to me, that's the key. All right. I don't see how we can go to another passage. Well, <laughs> You want to just close uh, with that reflection, or do you want to throw yours in, my friend? Well, okay, I'll do it. But the problem Please with do. mine, I'll do it. The problem with mine is that it's not a a one liner either. It, right. In fact, I had six points. <laughs> <laughs> so, <sighs> well, to tell you what we'll do, Ken. For those of you, I, I lied at the beginning of this program. We were going to talk about one scripture for this time. Then Ken and you and I will have another program, and we'll, we'll talk about yours because we've already gone 38 minutes. But why don't we then close this section, if you will, Ken, with some final thoughts on this. What difference does this way of understanding the rich young ruler in that question that he plays oh, before? Oh, 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 yeah. What difference does that make? Well, okay, I don't want to go oh, right now. You know, I'm writing a series for the for the newsletter about faith, about sola fide, about justification by faith. Faith and obedience is one of the primary yep. themes that I'm that I'm hammering on in this. Well, here's something I okay, and I'm happy we've made this decision because I really think in this context, this is such a rich discussion already. Yep. I think that the passage I had would would derail us and move us off. So I'm happy we'll do that to do next. In we'll a, do that next. Yeah, in another session, but. But when I was functioning in, according to the classic Protestant conception, okay, Luther, Melanchthon, the classic Protestantism that came down, view of justification, made a very, very, very strong distinction between law and gospel in the Bible, to the point to where many of them said things like this. And this is what is believed by vast, vast numbers of Protestants, is that Whenever you hear a commandment coming at you in Scripture from God, God knows you can't do it. And so he's, he's giving you the commandment, not so that you will actually do it, but so that you will realize you can't, and then you will, uh, or that you'll try and fail, so that you will say, Lord, I need to be justified by faith alone. You know, yeah. and, and so many of them will say that when Jesus comes to this rich young ruler and the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Many of them will say Jesus wasn't even being sincere. Jesus doesn't even believe that. He doesn't believe what he's saying. Jesus is just saying to him, in essence, try this and you'll fail and you find out you'll find out you need to be saved in an entirely different way. Plan A, plan B. Plan A, yeah, plan yeah. B. Yeah, right? Plan A, plan Plan B. I, I, exactly. And so there was a time when I would not have been able to even read this passage and and receive what it was saying, yeah. you know. But now I do because I see that faith and obedience 
viewed scripturally are like two sides of one coin, you know, and I've given all these illustrations in the articles that I'm writing, you know, Noah believed God and therefore he went and built a boat. His, uh, His building the boat was just the flip side of his faith in God. And he had to believe God and build the ark in order to be saved. He couldn't say to God, well, God, you know, I don't want to I, I don't want works to get involved in this whole situation. And I don't want anyone to ever be able to say that Noah saved himself by works. So I believe you that a flood's coming, but you're going to have to build a boat. I'm not going to build a boat because that would be works. Can you follow what I'm saying? Oh, you're, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. You're looking at, yeah. You're well, looking at okay. a past. I, I just, Go ahead. I'm Go just going to throw it exact right in line yeah. with what you're saying, my friend. Um. The passage, Ephesians 2, 8. Yeah. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That passage, to me, is the backdrop to to the rich young ruler. In other words, there's an order of things. Grace, faith, faith. Obedience. obedience. There's an order of things. Grace comes first. Mm -hmm. We respond freely. Faith. By faith. And then Mm -hmm. by faith we say, all right, Lord, what do you want of me? And then do we obey? In the story of the rich young ruler, grace had awakened his heart already. He was already obeying the commandments. He was already living the faith. It was his response to grace that brought him forward to Jesus to say, there's still more. I know, Lord, there's more. And so Jesus told him what to do. The question in this story was, are you going to do it? And the rich young ruler said no. Matthew said yes. Peter said yes. James said yes. John said yes. Mark, they, they followed. Paul, Paul had been awakened by yes. grace. He thought what he was doing was in line with everything. But I believe the reason he was zapped along the road is because he was saying all along, Lord, what do you want of my life? Mm -hmm. And the Lord responded. Did he obey? He did to the point, and you visited the church, my friend. I was sick that day, but you visited the church where the end result of Paul's obedience. And you also lost his head. You lost his head because. Whatever you want of me, Lord. That was the question and answer. Peter, I wasn't there either. I missed that day. I think, didn't you visit Quo Vadis? You know, where, um, where no, Peter turns stop. around? We didn't stop at the chapel, but we talked about it on the road, on the Appian Way. Yeah. Well, well, well you know, all these people, you're naming Matthew, you know, uh, the, the 12, Peter, Paul, and Hebrews chapter 11 is nothing more than a, a, a like a you know you know you know there's the rock and roll hall of fame, and um, that some people are supposed to be a, a, you know abducted no not abducted inducted <laughs> but um but uh, it, it's the hall of fame and if you read Hebrews 11 every one of them is faith and obedience by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice by faith Noah when he was warned built the boat by faith Abraham when he was called left Ur of the Chaldees in his home. And this is what we're talking about. Yep. And in the rich young ruler, though, the, the the sad story, I mean, who knows what happened to him the next day? Yep. Well, you know, he may have come to his senses like the like the prodigal. There's a tradition to, that says he was Barnabas. Okay, but, but the rich young ruler, at least at the time, 
when he was called, couldn't do it. Yeah. He and, couldn't, uh, he yeah. couldn't do it. And, and that, you know, I suppose if we, if we wrap we this, it? if we wrap this up, when we stand, we sit in church and we look around us, or we sit downtown having a cup of coffee, and we look at all the people walking downtown. And uh, what we want for those people is that they will respond to the grace they have, the information that's all around them to which they are culpable. Right? Mm-hmm. Paul says, "No one was without excuse. They have the grace." Now, number one, evangelization. They might need more information. That's our job, to tell, to proclaim, to preach. Ooh, um, <laughs> oh, I just got a call from somebody. Uh, the uh, Oh, I thought that was the music at the end of the show telling oh, us it's done. It probably is. Um, all right. You know, all, so when we look at these people with all that information, our prayer is that they get to that point in their life when they're awakened to respond, to ask, what do you want of me? That's the key. We want that of our kids, our grandkids, and of ourselves. So that by grace, then, God will respond to them, and then they'll respond obediently. And that's the walk of faith towards salvation. It's not a one-time thing, right? And that's why, in the end, it applies to you even now, and it applies to me even now. Yeah. What does the Lord want going forward. Yeah. Because, you know, because it's not a one-time thing, like you just said. Yeah. And the danger is we can get caught up on the individual. What do you want of me, Lord, when I grow up? What do you want? Blah, blah, blah. What do you want? And no, it's still the regular obedience. Yeah. It still involves the regular obedience growing. Yeah. The whole thing. By grace. The whole thing. Pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14, I think. Oh, that's uh, important. For, one of those verses I never saw before. but. Yeah. Okay. Ken, thank you for joining us yes. on this program. This was awesome. This was a lot of fun. I hope you, those of you listening to the program enjoyed this. Uh, please let us know what you think of these Deep in Scripture programs. And God bless you. We'll be with you again soon. God thank bless. you. Thank you. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.